Thank you for listening to this recent message from the Rescue Church. We pray that God will use this message to encourage, challenge, and inspire you on your faith journey. If you'd like to learn more about the Rescue Church, please visit us online at therescuechurch.com. All right, well, I want to start today by asking you to consider a question, and I'm going to probe kind of deep with this question, okay? It's rhetorical, so you don't have to raise your hand or answer out loud, but I am going to ask you to honestly think about what we're talking about here today. Here's the question. What is it in your life that you're chasing today? What is it you're pursuing? All of us have something. We don't, maybe we don't think clearly enough about it. Maybe we don't give it the thought that it deserves or requires. But all of us are pursuing, chasing something in life. I want you to think about that for a minute and truly be honest with yourself. Like, what is it? I'll, I'll ask the question this way. What is it that you're pursuing in life that basically is kind of telling you, if I just had this, whatever this is, or if I just achieved this thing, then I will be happy, fulfilled, satisfied. What is it that you're pursuing? Because here's what I want you to know. If you honestly think about the answer to that question, whatever you come up with, if that answer is anything that falls outside of pursuing a relationship with the living God, what I want you to know and what we're going to discover as we begin a new series today is that you, my friend, are chasing after empty promises. You're chasing after something that's promising to offer fulfillment and, you know, like fullness in your life, and you're going to find it to be hollow and empty if that is done apart from a relationship with God. Because today, we're starting a brand new series by this title, Empty Promises, and it's going to be a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you knew that there was a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes? Raise your hand. All right, cool, about half of us, and that's fine. I'm not saying that in an insulting way. A lot of people have never read Ecclesiastes. A lot of people, for that matter, have never read most of the Bible. But Ecclesiastes is this tiny little book in the Old Testament. It's part of the wisdom literature. And I just want to talk a little bit, kind of give an overview to the book. And then we're going to just spend probably... I don't know, 18, 19, 20 weeks going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if that sounds like too much, believe me, you don't want me to like fast forward through it, okay? Because it'll be information overload. Ecclesiastes, let's talk about it. What is it? First of all, I would tell you this. Ecclesiastes, for those of you that have read it. Actually, can I just ask by show of hands, how many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay, cool, about half. Here's the thing, you may recall, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't read like so much of the rest of the Bible. Would you agree with that? Like, I'll tell you this, Ecclesiastes kind of reads a little bit, a lot of bit, dark and hopeless. And a little bit fatalistic. And like, I would tell you this, if you have a friend that comes to you that's kind of down in the dumps and they're like, man, I'm feeling kind of discouraged and depressed, what would you recommend I read in scripture? Don't tell them Ecclesiastes, all right? It's not like a pump you up kind of book. Having said that, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes, it's an ancient book that has timeless truths that are, have never been more relevant to our culture than right now. Because what Ecclesiastes is, it's, it's essentially probing this question, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? 
So let's talk about the, the author for a minute. Well, we'll get to the author, but I guess I wanted to say one other quick thing about Ecclesiastes. Uh, a lot of commentators will tell you that it's a very difficult book to outline, and that's kind of nerdy preacher talk for saying, like, when we study the Bible and preachers preach through the Bible, a lot of times they like to outline Scripture into its big ideas and big thoughts. Well, here's the thing with Ecclesiastes. It just rambles all over the place. It goes from one topic to another. There's really not these neat little categories in Ecclesiastes, and for that reason, a lot of preachers never even tackle the book, because it's, it's, a, it's kind of a deep, dark, depressing book. But I love it because that's kind of a metaphor of life, isn't it? Like my life, I don't know about yours, my life doesn't fit into neat little categories that are easy to outline. Sometimes my life kind of rambles. Sometimes my sermons kind of ramble, right? You'll find that out too. But, but Ecclesiastes is that way. It's an interesting book like that. Ecclesiastes, here's kind of a fun fact, is a book where we never hear God speak in Ecclesiastes. Most books in Scripture, at some point, God is speaking to someone or to us in, in the Scripture. In Ecclesiastes, this is a book removed from God. We don't hear God's voice. It, as a matter of fact, we hear a resounding absence of the voice of God in this book of Ecclesiastes. Does anybody know who wrote Ecclesiastes? I heard a couple of people say Solomon. I would agree with you, and I want to introduce you to the author. So let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you're following along, verse 1, here's what Solomon writes. He says, these are the words of the what? Teacher. He's going to refer to himself multiple times in this book as the teacher. What, what should we do when the teacher talks? Right, listen, right? Because they got something to say. He calls himself the teacher, and he says he's also King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. Now, some people would, would say they, there's, there's kind of a camp out there that says, no, Solomon is not the author of Ecclesiastes. Me and a lot of other smart people, actually, I join a lot of other smart people in saying, if you take that position that Solomon is not the author of Ecclesiastes, the burden of proof is kind of on you then to say, well, who is it? Because so much of what we find in Ecclesiastes aligns itself with what we know to be true of Solomon from other places in Scripture. So I believe, as many do, that Solomon, King Solomon, is the author of this book. So let's meet this guy. Let's, let's kind of get a profile of who he is. And I know I'm going slow into this, but this helps to have a foundation as we go through the rest of the book. Do you know, is it, isn't it a little easier to read a book when you know the author? right? Or at least you know something about the author. Sometimes we have a deeper connection to the book. So let's get to know Solomon for just a little bit. All right, pop quiz. Who was Solomon's daddy? David. He already told us that, so that's not that hard. of a, You only get half a credit for that question. More, more, a bigger credit is this. Who is his mama? Who's Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. And if, if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, well, even if you did, they probably didn't tell this story in Sunday school because it is the stuff of soap operas and R-rated movies, the story of King David and Bathsheba. Remember the story? David is the king of Israel at the time. He sees this beautiful woman. He brings her into his palace. They have an adulterous relationship. They, they conceive a child out of that in an effort to clean it up and cover it up. David has her husband, Uriah, killed on the front lines of battle, and they think they get away with it, and yet it, it's exposed, and, and, then, and then the child dies. Remember that? And so that's not Solomon. The next child that David and Bathsheba conceived is who? Solomon, and he's the next guy in line for the throne. So as he grows up, he becomes the king of Israel. He, is, he reigns for 40 years as the king of Israel, and Israel probably hit its pinnacle of its heyday. There had never been a greater time of peace and prosperity than under Solomon's reign. 
And all of that credit really doesn't belong to Solomon because David fought a lot of battles to, to get it to that point. But something very important happened in Solomon's life at an early age. And see, I believe the story of Solomon is really kind of the story of a prodigal child. Because I think the snapshot we get from Scripture is Solomon at a young age has a heart to follow the Lord and, and, and walk in his ways. And yet it doesn't take Solomon long to turn away from the Lord and turn to all of the empty promises. And he spends a lifetime trying to pursue and find meaning and purpose in life in everything except the Lord. And it's probably not until his later years of, it is, of his life that he's now writing this book of Ecclesiastes, probably looking back over his life going, wow. Look at all these years I wasted pursuing stuff that was empty and meaningless. Okay, so, but in the early days of his life, he, he had this amazing opportunity. Imagine if the living God came to you and said, you have one request, I will grant whatever you ask. What's the one thing you would ask for? 90% of us would be like, I need 10 more wishes, right? I need, I need a bunch of money, right? What did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Now, that's wise in and of itself. As a young leader, he recognized, I need wisdom to lead all these people. And God was so honored with that request for wisdom that he said, you know what, Solomon, because you did not ask for wealth and fame and fortune and all this power, I'm going to give you wisdom and all that other stuff to go along with it. And so Solomon, we can read about, you'll notice on your handouts, I've given you some uh, other passages in Scripture where we can kind of read about the attributes of Solomon and, and really get his profile. But a few more things about his life that'll just kind of help us build a foundation. Solomon was credited with building the temple, right? Remember the Old Testament temple? Now again, it was on David's heart to build, but God said, David, you've killed so many dudes in battle, you're not going to build my temple. So David gathered all the materials, but it wasn't until Solomon's reign that this temple was built. It took Solomon about seven years and thousands and thousands of workers to build this magnificent structure. Magnificent. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's right. This big, awesome structure to the Lord, right? And Solomon watched as fire came down from heaven and consumed this burnt offering and the presence of God filled the temple. Like Sol you imagine that experience? Like Solomon was there. He saw that. Another fun fact about Solomon, and this will come into play today and in many other weeks ahead as we talk about these pursuits of his life. You think your family's screwed up? You think your Family get-togethers are a little dysfunctional. Let me tell you a little fun fact about Solomon. This dude had 700 wives. That is not a typo, and you did not mishear me. 700 wives that this dude had. Plus 300 concubines. That is not the combines that harvest crops in the field. This is concubines. These are women who existed for the sole purpose was sexual fulfillment and pleasure of the king. 300 of them. You're like, why are you telling us about Solomon's bedroom? Because he's going to tell us more about his bedroom and the emptiness that's there. So an interesting guy. Solomon's an interesting guy. And in, in this book, he's asking this question. What is the meaning? What is the purpose of life? Essentially, Solomon is on this lifelong experiment in which he is both the researcher and the subject. And the experiment is, where can I find purpose and fulfillment and meaning in life? And think about this, like in modern times when a scientist or a group of scientists want to do a big study or a research project, one thing they often have to secure for that is funding, right? Because those things usually aren't free, they're not cheap, so we've got to get funding, and then the funding is limited, and we try and do this study of whatever it is. 
Solomon went on this lifelong experiment to find the, the meaning and the purpose for life. In his experiment, there were absolutely no end to the resources at his disposal. He was the wealthiest. He was the most powerful. He was the wisest person outside of Christ who ever lived. There was no end to the, to the resources available to him. And we're going to see very quickly, he comes to an interesting conclusion about this life that we know. And again, if you're a young person here today, I'll let you define what young is. But if you're like just graduating high school, just starting your young adult life, I would contend Solomon has you in his crosshairs of his scope. He's aiming at you. Because what he's basically saying is, guys, I've lived an entire life that has been so well-funded, and I've gone down so many different avenues, and we're going to explore those as we go through this book. And what he's going to tell you is there's nothing down there. There's nothing down there. Outside of the Lord, it's empty and it's meaningless. So that leads us to verse 2. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is Solomon. This is the teacher saying something of value to us. Everything is what? Meaningless. And in case you missed it, he goes on to put an exclamation point and says, completely meaningless. The, the, the Hebrew word that's used there for meaningless, and by the way, that phrase is found about 38 times in this book of Ecclesiastes. But it's the Hebrew word habel, which means vapor or breath. Solomon is saying, like, our life is so short. It's here one minute, gone the next. James in the New Testament says the same thing, same word. Like, it's, it's just here for a moment. It's so fleeting. Here one day, gone the next. It's meaningless. Imagine this. Imagine this. Let this, this little situation play out in your mind. Tomorrow, you get up and go about your business, right? You get to school. You go to work. You go wherever your business is going to take you tomorrow. You bump into someone in the aisle of the grocery store, and you're like, hey, Bob. You meet Bob. You know Bob. Hey, Bob, how's life? What's, what's the, the, the line Bob's supposed to say? Bob, how's life? Good. How's your life? Good. Right? That's like, that's like our official American handshake. That's how we do it. Imagine you bump into Bob. Hey, Bob, how's life? Meaningless. <laughs> Completely meaningless. Bob, we should talk. I think Solomon is trying to slap us in the face a little bit and get our attention. Like verse 2, he, he introduces himself in verse 1. I'm the teacher. I'm King David's son. Verse 2, meaningless. In life, everything is meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Some translations use the word vanity. Empty, meaningless. Anybody worried about Solomon's mental health at this point? I am. I'm about ready to call the suicide hotline for a guy that says life is completely meaningless. That's exactly where he's at. He wants us to listen to what he's getting ready to say. So verse 3, let's go on. He, he asks this very important question. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun. Now, I want to point out that phrase, and you should maybe underline it in your Bible, or if you've got your handouts and you're following along, that phrase, under the sun. It's an important phrase, and it's important for us to understand the context in which Solomon is speaking, because I don't want anybody walking out of here today going, my pastor told me life is meaningless. I'm not saying that. We're hearing Solomon say, life under the sun. What does that phrase mean? By the way, it's used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is referring to life apart from, void of, a, re a relationship or revelation from God. It's life apart from God. 
And Solomon is saying, for all of our busyness, for all of our fast-paced, frantic, you know, way we live our life, all of our hard work and our run, 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 go, go, go. What do we get? Why do we work so hard? What do we get for all of our hard work? And Solomon's answer is nothing. Nothing. I I don't recommend you take this verse into your boss tomorrow and be like, yesterday I heard in church that this is all meaningless, so I'm just going to sit this one out today, boss, if you don't mind. But we're all gearing up for another hard week of work, right? Running around, getting up with the alarm clock, chasing, chasing whatever it is we're chasing, going to the J-O-B. And Solomon says it's meaningless. What do we get for it? We get nothing for it under the sun. We cannot miss that phrase, and we're going to hear it so many times as we go through Ecclesiastes, because, again, I don't believe when we bring the equation of God into the factor, there's purpose and there's hope and there's meaning in our work. But removed of that, Solomon says, I've tried that and it's meaningless. So let's talk about what worldviews, what isms, if you will, in our world today would agree with that idea of under the sun. How about this one? Atheism. Atheism is the belief that we came from nothing and nowhere and we are going to nothing and nowhere and no one. And so in this life, This is all it is. And Solomon says, this life under the sun, meaningless. How about deism? The the belief that, well, maybe there is a God, maybe there is a deity, but if he or she or it exists, they're somewhere out there and they don't have any care of my life or what's going on here and now. They, They wound up the world and the universe like a clock, sent it spinning into orbit and walked away. There is no God. There is no purpose or plan for my life. And Solomon says, that's life under the sun, and it's meaningless. Naturalism. This is big in our world today. Naturalism is this belief that all that exists is what we can see, feel, hold, taste, touch right here in our physical world. If we can't put it under a microscope, if we can't quantify it in some physical way, it it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. That's life under the sun. Life removed from a relationship with God. And Solomon says, you can work as hard as you want. It means nothing. What do we get for all of our work under the sun? Verse 4, young people, listen to this. Solomon says, generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, then turns north and dumps a bunch of snow on you in April when you shouldn't be... Oh, it didn't say that, I'm sorry. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then waters return again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. You know what he's saying? Solomon is saying that, hey, generations come and generations go and nothing changes. Young people, here's the thing you need to know. Young people for generation upon generation have grown up and looked at the generation in front of them and said, you all screwed this place up. You guys are the problem. You're so out of touch. You don't know what's going on. Our generation has the answers. We have the solution, and we're going to change the world, man. That's why young people are drawn to causes and activism. And I'm not saying it's entirely a bad thing, but Solomon is basically saying this. No, you're not. You're not going to change the world. Because you know what? In another generation, your kids are going to grow up and think you're out of touch and you screwed everything up and they've got the answers and the problems. Generations come and generations go And nothing ever changes. It's meaningless. It's hopeless. Under the sun. 
verse 8. He says, everything is wearisome beyond description. Look at this next line, guys. Tell me this is not relevant to our world today. No matter how much we see, we are never what? No matter how much we hear, we are never what? Let's try it again. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. It's convicting, isn't it? That's why you don't want to say it out loud, right? Either that or you're asleep. This has never been more true than right now in our society, in the western part of the world, in the United States of America in the year 2019, where we have so much abundance and yet so much emptiness. See, what are you chasing? I believe there's people today that if you were honest, you would say, if I just had more money. I believe that. I do about my life sometimes. If I just had more money. Guess what, friends? You're never going to have more money than Solomon. Never. Under his reign, silver was like worthless because the wealth was so immense that he had. You'll never have more money than Solomon. If I just had a bigger house, a nicer house, your house is never going to be bigger or nicer than Solomon's. Remember I told you it took him seven years to build God's house? It took him about 14 to build his own. It kind of puts our little home and garden television remake and remodel in perspective, doesn't it? Like, ew, maybe this isn't that sexy. Your house is never going to be nicer than Solomon's. If I just had more power, man, if I just got to that place of authority where people would listen to me and I had the title to go with it, if I just had more power, you will never have more power than King Solomon. He was the most powerful man in the world. If I just had more education, I need another degree. I got to go back to school. Nothing wrong with school and degrees and education. You're never going to be wiser than Solomon. He had it all. If I just had more sex, I'm not sexually fulfilled in that area of my life. If I could just get on Tinder and swipe right a few more times, Solomon had more sexual options at his disposal than you or I ever will have. You won't have more than him. It's meaningless. It's empty. See, I believe Solomon might very well have been the first American. Because I believe Solomon had a full refrigerator. He had a full bank account. He had a full garage with the coolest chariots that were being made in his day. Cadillac, I think, is where they got their start back then. He had a full bedroom. He had a full social calendar. Full, 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 and an empty soul. Because he was chasing a bunch of empty promises that said they would deliver fulfillment and gratification and satisfaction. And Solomon found it all to be completely empty and completely meaningless. A couple more verses and we'll pause for today. Verses 9 through 11. Solomon says, history merely repeats itself. This kind of ties back into that whole young people, you're not going to change the world, right? Under the sun, you know you're not. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in the future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. Wow, that makes me feel relevant today, right? Let's just test this for a moment and see if Solomon is actually speaking the truth. He's basically saying, no matter for all of your striving and reaching and hard work and the stuff you and I value so much in this life right now, when we die, the world's going to move on very quickly and forget about our accomplishments and our contributions. Let's just test that theory. I like football. Some of you may know that. I got my little Vikings coffee cup up here, right? What's the coveted ultimate prize in the world of football? 
Super Bowl. Okay, we got two football fans in the house. All right, cool. Super Bowl. We put so much time, focus, energy, money, and, and obsession into reaching that one milestone, and only one team's going to get it. World champions. Church, tell me who won the Super Bowl six years ago. Oh, okay, not the one. I wasn't ready for that one. We're trying to have a holy moment here, Troy. That's also true. Not the Vikings. I can't deny that. Not the Vikings, and I couldn't tell you who it was. And I know we've got these little Google machines in our pocket that can tell us who won the Super Bowl five, six years ago, but the truth is even the most ardent football supporter would have to think about it. Why? Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. And the world moves on, and no one really cares. And that's just the Super Bowl. That's not even getting down to our little lives. We never play on that level of a stage. Solomon says, generations come, generations go, history repeats itself. And when you die, the world's going to keep right on moving. And when you are living life under the sun, apart from a relationship with the living God, it is all empty and meaningless and hopeless. Now, I hope the rapture doesn't happen right now because you all are going to be very depressed. Like, man, church was a downer today. Like we, so let me get to some hope. But friends, here's the deal. Truly, if all our focus is is under the sun, th- this is kind of a summary statement. I put it on the bottom of your notes. If this is our only focus, life lived under the sun is a dark, hopeless, and meaningless life. Amen? That's what Solomon is saying. Young people, church, hear me. If you spend your life pursuing the empty promises of this world, you will come to the same conclusion that history's wisest fool came to himself, and that is it's a meaningless, hopeless, dark existence. No matter how much money, wealth, power, sex, fame, fortune I have, it's empty. It's meaningless. So if that's true... That no matter where we look under the sun, we find no meaning, no purpose, no fulfillment. We have to look somewhere else for that. We have to look above the sun. What if, church, what if there actually is a God who exists above the sun? And what if this God actually loves me and you? What if this God actually created me and you on purpose for a purpose, and what if this God was intensely interested in your life here and now? The little dash between the little dash on your tombstone between the born on date and the died on date. What if this God is very concerned about that short existence in this life and all of the years to come after it in eternity? What if that God was willing to come down under? the sun and take on a cloak of humanity and know what it is to to struggle like we struggle and what if that god loved us enough to go to a cross and lay down his life pouring out his blood and having his body crushed and broken beyond recognition to take my sin and your sin upon himself because what if that god actually longs to forgive you of your sin and your rebellion and offer you the grace and the hope and the redemption that eternal life with Jesus Christ brings. See, when we look above the sun and we recognize that life under the sun is not all there is, we find hope and we find meaning and we find purpose. 
But I want to bring us back to this question. We're getting ready to move into a time of communion as we enter into this, what we call Holy Week. Like Keith was saying earlier, it's Palm Sunday, and we start thinking, our minds go back to that major historical event. Not only when Jesus Christ made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and, and the crowds were screaming out Hosanna and laying down their palm branches, but, but then as the week progressed and Jesus did some amazing miracles and taught some amazing things in those days leading up to that Thursday night where he had his last supper with the disciples. And he tried to tell them what was coming and they didn't really understand it. In his darkest hour, all of his disciples, all of his friends left him. And abandon him. And if you've ever felt like betrayed, if you have ever felt alone, Jesus Christ knows what that is. He knows what that pain feels like. As everyone that was close to him scattered. Leaving him in his darkest hour to stand before. Not, it wasn't just the brutal physical act that awaited him that, that had him so disturbed. It was the fact that after this brutal, torturous beating... That Jesus Christ would be impaled to the cross and his father, who for eternity past, he had been in perfect relationship with his father. His father would turn his back on his son as my sin and your sin was placed upon the shoulders of his son Jesus. And the father can't look at that. The father is perfect and he cannot be with sinful people. And Jesus stood in the gap for you and me and his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we remember that on that Friday, Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross. So when we come to communion, that's, that's really what we're doing, is we're looking back to the cross, and we have these physical elements that we hold in our hands, this little cracker that's symbolic of the body of Christ, and this grape juice that's representative of the blood of Jesus. And as we look at that and hold it and think about it, we are reminded of that incredible price Jesus paid on my behalf and on your behalf. Here's what we're going to do, church, as we move into this time. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul told the church in Corinth, when we do this, what we're getting ready to do now, he said that let, let every man examine himself. So the Lord's Supper, communion, is something that should be entered into very solemnly and very reverently. Not flippantly, Paul said, if we do that, we actually eat and drink damnation onto ourselves. Like That's heavy-duty stuff. So Paul is saying, look, when you gather around the Lord's Supper, when you gather around this symbolic memorial meal, and you look back to the cross, what we need to do is keep in mind, what is our heart like with the Lord? Lord, examine my heart. What's my relationship like with you today? So church, I want to ask you in just a moment, we're going to bring up some music. You guys can get that started right now, if you will. We're going to have some music softly playing, and I'm just going to get out of the way, and we're going to sit quietly before the Lord for a few moments where you can just ask him, Lord, what's my relationship like with you today? What's my heart like with you today? And if you're here today and have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you today, from wherever you're sitting, you can call upon the name of Jesus. And the promise is, whosoever shall call upon my name shall be saved. For the rest of us that know Christ, that have that relationship as we're sitting in this quiet moment, let's think about that question. What are we chasing? What are we pursuing? What is it that we really believe is going to bring fulfillment to our life? Let's spend a few moments in prayer together.
like me, you don't like moments like this right now. I don't, not, it's not the communion, I mind, it's the, the silence. I don't like awkward pauses of silence, but check this out. Matthew 12, 42, um, here's one of the reasons we don't like silence, I think, in our world. A little context, back in Solomon's day, there was a queen, her na- she was a queen of Sheba, a distant country, and she had heard about this man named Solomon and all of his exploits and greatness, and so she traveled a long way to sit before him and hear his teaching and, and meet him. And when she left, the, the Bible tells us she was basically like, wow, the, the stories don't even do justice to who this Solomon is, right? So Jesus in Matthew 12, 42 is saying something that that Queen of Sheba thing is helpful context. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says to the religious establishment, these people who had all this man-made religion and rules, but void of a relationship with God, Jesus said to them, the Queen of Sheba, will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now listen to what Jesus says. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. See, the reason sometimes we avoid these quiet moments like this is because in those quiet moments, God speaks. We don't want to listen. We don't want to hear what he has to say. All right, you can kill that music. Get that out of there. <clears throat> All right. In this quiet moment, I just want to challenge you with this question. What is Jesus saying to me today? As I look back and think about the body and the blood of Christ that, that was paid on my behalf, what step is God asking me to take? What is he whispering to me? And how does that, how does that contrast from the empty promises that are inviting me? Give me your life. Young people, follow me. Follow a life of addiction. Follow a life of rebellion. Follow a life of chasing after the things of this world. Make sure you make a lot of money and tons of it because you'll be so happy and fulfilled. Nothing wrong with having money, but if that's all you're pursuing, it's an empty promise. And it stands in stark contrast to the voice of God who's calling you into a relationship with him and to walk with him. So as we go back to that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he reaches back to that moment, to that event. And, and he's reminding the church in Corinth of that time that Jesus had this moment with his disciples. At, at the end of their last meal together, Jesus takes these simple elements that were on the table. And he takes this piece of bread, and I can just imagine him holding it up saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says, In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer today. God in heaven, I thank you for this time that you've given to us. Lord Jesus, as we enter into a a special week in the life of the Christian faith, as we are reminded so pertinently this week of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf so many years ago, Lord Jesus, we just come before you with gratitude and thanksgiving and humility because we don't deserve it. Lord, I know I speak on behalf of a grateful church that we would all say none of us here is worthy of the sacrifice you made on our behalf to have your body so brutally beaten and broken, to have your blood so violently poured out, 
to be an atoning sacrifice for all of the sin and wrong and rebellion that I have chosen and that our church has chosen against you. We don't deserve that love. We don't deserve that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness that you extend. But we're thankful. Lord, we live in a world where the voices are so loud every single day. The voices that call to us and tell us, you're missing out. You're missing out. Come after me. Pursue me. Follow me. And you'll be happy and fulfilled. And Lord, so often we chase after those empty promises that lead us absolutely nowhere to absolutely nothing but emptiness. And so often we do so as we ignore the voice of the God in heaven who calls us by name, says, I created you on purpose and I love you. And I gave my very best, my only begotten son for your eternal forgiveness. Lord, I pray that today we would stop our chasing after the empty promises and we would turn to your voice. That on this week especially, that we would hear your voice and respond to it. That we would call upon your name. Not only for salvation, Lord, but that that there would be prayers of repentance in this place today as we are convicted that, yes, Lord, so often we're chasing after those empty promises in neglect of you. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to work in our hearts in any way that you see fit. You know the details of each and every life, and you know where we need to, to be encouraged and convicted. And I invite you to do that now as we dismiss from here and as we go into this Easter week. Lord, I pray that you would just bless each and every one of us. If there's someone here today that yet needs a relationship with the Lord Jesus, today, Lord, might this be their day of salvation. Might today be the day that they surrender and turn to you and call upon your name. You get all the honor, the praise, and the glory for how you use this message in our hearts and in our lives, Jesus. We love you. We worship you. It's in your precious name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Rescue Church Past Messages. To hear our messages live, head to one of our physical campuses or check out our iCampus at therescuechurch.tv.